Revelation chapter 16. If you'll go over there with me today. This is, um, I believe, the hardest chapter in the entire book. Just so you understand what we're about to see. It is terrible. It is terrible. Just follow along with the words as I read to you. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heavens because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that... The way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered together, them together, to a place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megedon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake it was, and so mighty, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away. And the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones 
about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, because the plague was extremely severe. Wow. All right, I'm here to encourage you this morning. We'll start with prayer. Heavenly Father, you do not put things in this book that are not true. You do not put things in this book that are just merely threats without any intention to follow through. But these things are true, and they will happen, just like you said. And it frightens us. Not that we will endure such things, for we understand from your word that we will be with you. But it frightens us to know that people will go through this. People that might be our friends today, our family today. People we know, people we love, who do not know Christ as Savior. And if you should come for us today as a church and take us to be with you, we know we would love that. What a great thing that would be. And yet for those who stay on this earth who do not know you, this is what you have planned. This is what will take place. And as severe as it is, and as alarming as it is, I pray that we as believers, to whom this book was given, might understand what we are to do with this knowledge. And I pray that you prompt our hearts, that we might follow through with what you call us to do. And I thank you, Lord, for giving it to us, even though it's so hard. Thank you for your kindness to us. And I pray that you might guide us in our time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, seatbelts on. I want you to imagine for a moment, living in a country where violence is the main topic of news every day. Imagine living in a country where sin is visible in every direction. Imagine that sin is found in media, it's found in the neighborhood, it's found wherever you turn your eyes. Imagine living in a country where it's trying at best to destroy itself. Imagine living in a country where people fight one another and seek every opportunity to start another contention. Imagine living in a country where law is ignored, where the guilty go free and the innocent are being arrested. Imagine living in a country where wicked has the upper hand on the righteous and take advantage of it. You may think I'm describing a country you know well. What if I told you that there was such a country 2,600 years ago? Just like that. There's a prophet in the Old Testament. His name was Habakkuk. Some people say, I don't know much about Habakkuk. 
And please don't ask me to spell his name. Matter of fact, people still don't even know how to pronounce his name. Is it Habakkuk or is Habakkuk? We have to ask him when we get there. Everybody's going to ask him that question. I know it. He lived during the time when there was a king named Jehoiakim on the throne. Now, we know a little bit about Jehoiakim, but you may not know him any different than you know Habakkuk. So let me introduce you first to the king, so I could introduce you to the prophet. Jehoiakim would reign for 11 years in Jerusalem. That's not a long span of time compared to uh, many of the other kings. He was of the nation of Judah, so that's the southern kingdom, and it's after the split, after Solomon died, Rehoboam was the king of the south, and Jeroboam was king of the north, and the split lasted for quite a long time. The northern kingdom is gone. There's only a southern kingdom left. And Jehoiakim is a descendant of David, and Josiah, and Hezekiah, and several great men that came along and sat upon those thrones, that throne. He would reign for 11 years, from 609 B.C. to 5. Well, this area, we're talking about 598 B.C. Jehoiakim was forced, or rather, he forced a very heavy tax upon his people because he was paying tribute to a country called Egypt. He was described by Jeremiah as exceedingly arrogant, The people were so burdened by his taxes, he exploited them to build houses for him. Very splendid houses with expensive furnishings. So he turned his people into his slaves. He ignored justice. He hated righteousness. He had no intention of obeying the Lord. And he had prophets like Jeremiah... Habakkuk and others speaking to him about these things. Scripture says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He executed a prophet of the Lord named Urijah. He did things that God didn't even want written in his word. God summed it up this way. He did abominable acts against God. And those are not spelled out for us, and I'm glad they weren't. He received a message from Jeremiah one day, which is in the Word of God. It was a message to him, a lengthy message. And he sliced it up with a knife and threw it in his fireplace as he sat there before it. That's his contempt for God's Word. He was so evil that even his own people, when he died, didn't even respond to it. That's his mark in history. Would you like a leader like that? I don't think you would. So, if you just met Jehoiakim, let's talk about the prophet Habakkuk. In his own words, if you can find the book in the Old Testament... It's in the Minor Prophets. It's usually about 
one and a half pages long. There's only three chapters in it. It's a real tiny little book. And Habakkuk's own words in chapter number one. Verse two. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Remember that list of questions I asked you to imagine? That was from this verse. These verses. That's what Habakkuk saw every single day. God answered Habakkuk in this little book with a huge surprise. He says in verse number 5 to Habakkuk, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. I'm going to leave you to wonder what God meant by that. Habakkuk is a short book, a potent book, that ends with a spectacular statement of faith. It's worth your time to read it, but don't do it right now. All right? Put it on your list of things to do. Read the book of Habakkuk. But it was Habakkuk who first uttered the words that were repeated throughout the New Testament and in the Reformation day of the 1500s. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk was the man who wrote that first. Within a few verses, Habakkuk prays to the Lord again. And listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I sometimes wonder if that might be the prayer that believers ought to be praying today. In the midst of these years, Lord, in the midst of these years, we know your work is going on. In wrath, remember mercy. We are entering Revelation 16. We're going quite a long ways from the days of Habakkuk, but the scene is really not that much different. All that we have seen so far is only rehearsal to this performance. Say, wow, we've seen some terrible things in this book. Yes, we have. It's almost like they've been warming up for what you're about to behold. I told you, I believe this is perhaps the hardest chapter in this book. Maybe in all of Scripture, for that matter. What is alarming is the fact that it is yet to come. I would love to say this is over. It's already happened. Let's relax and just move on. Study it like it's a piece of history. And just step past that. But that's not the case. It's yet to come. 
Our world is daily justifying the display of this wrath. We are not even in the tribulation yet, and it's hard to believe that things could get worse, but they do. As we have seen, studying in this book together, the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself have been making a mess of the world during the tribulation period. Have you noticed that? Everything's just terrible. Our future brothers and sisters in faith are going to suffer enormously at their hands during those seven years. In chapters 16 through 19, we see God's wrath intentionally poured out in that direction. And that's where we begin, chapter 16, verse 1. There are seven bowls. You might have the word vials, if you have a King James Version in front of you. Seven bowls of judgment. We have already witnessed seven seal judgments. They started the tribulation period. We've seen the seven trumpet judgments that seem to be more in the middle of the tribulation period. These seven bowl judgments, I believe, come near the end of the tribulation period. As I told you before, with the seal judgments, seal number one, then seal number two, then seal number three, they increased in intensity. The trumpet judgments picked up where the seal judgments left off, and the intensity was growing stronger yet. What do you think we have just reached when we reach the third set? It's almost like if this was the volume switch on the dial, it's turned all the way to the top. You got the picture? I'm bracing yourself. I'm bracing you for what we're about to read. Because we read through it, but now the pastor is going to explain some of it. And it's not pretty. Seven bowls of the wrath of God. The other ones weren't named quite like that, were they? Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, they call it this. These are bowls of the wrath of God. We ended the last chapter with that phrase. The wrath of God. Don't take that word lightly. That's pretty intense. Verse number one, And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. They got those bowls of God's wrath from the temple in heaven. An angel brought them out, or one of the um, elders there handed them to the angels. They came out of that. And remember, there was, there was such a, a display of God's glory at that moment at the end of chapter 15 that nobody could even enter that temple to worship or to perform their duties. Even godly, perfect angels and whoever else is up there in heaven who are in their perfect bodies, glorified as can be, could not enter it because God's glory was so intense. And that's when these were carried out. They're handed to these angels. And the first one is told to go and pour it. you got a vivid picture in your head right now, don't you? Pour it out. Pour it out where? Pour it out on the earth. Each judgment is going to get worse than the last one. 
what we have seen so far, I think, was somewhat mild. They've been growing. But watch what happens. Verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. The New American Standard reads, it became a loathsome and malignant sore. Now, there's a variety of words here. Noisome is a Greek word. Noisome. It sounds interesting. Uh, it, or the King James says noisome. And you say, well, what, what's a noisome sore? What do you put? Tampo phonique on that? The, the Greek word is kakos, which is bad. That's the word. It's bad. When, when they work with the word kakos, it's something that is destructive. There is never anything good out of that word kakos. It sometimes is used for worthless. If, if this is the identity of something in your refrigerator, please get rid of it. It has no value whatsoever in a beneficial way. Nothing good comes out of that word. There is no way to turn this word around and say, well, it's not too bad. It is bad. All right? It is a terrible, terrible, destructive word. And it goes with another word. We translate malignant here. Ponderous is a Greek word here, which is even worse than bad, if you can. It is something so grievous that it causes turmoil trying to get rid of it. This is a thing that you might find on your arm and you're doing everything you can to get rid of it instantly. Like you're playing in the garden picking something and suddenly this hairy thing is there with all these legs. What's your response? At, I mean, before you faint, usually. It's like, swat it, knock it down, gun, scream, whatever you do. You want to get away from it. That's the nature of whatever this sore is. It's that intense that people see it and panic hits them. The word turmoil here hits instantly. They do everything in their power to try to get rid of it. You got the picture? It's sometimes, like New American Standard calls it malignant. It's loathsome. It is actually related to the word wicked, for that matter. But watch what happens. This terrible, terrible sore is found on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. I love just the little comment Dr. Charles Ryrie made. I was, I was sitting in a classroom where he was teaching the book of Revelation. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. That was just a few years back. And he was quite advanced in age, uh, just a year or so before he passed away. Um, and um, he was there explaining the book of Revelation. And it was such a delight to listen to him. He wrote his commentary on that and such a... Uh, man of uh, intelligence with God's word and such. And so he sums it all up in one phrase. I said, wow, I wish I could just say it in one phrase. But, you know, I've got 45 minutes to fill. So um, he said this, Satan gave them a mark. God gave them a sore. I said, ooh, boy, is that simple sounding. God gave them a sore. A sore, by the way, you're going to see it later in the verses, 
it didn't go away. All right, you got the first thing? They've got the sore, incredible sore, because they had the mark of the beast. Number two, verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. Now I'm going to read this intentionally. It became blood. I know some translation says it became as blood. Following the Greek, it's actually, it became blood. Like or as that of a dead man. I tried to fathom what that would be. Apparently, the blood of a dead man is different than blood of a living man. And that would make sense to me, I think, scientifically, probably. You doctors would understand that better. But uh, this is not a pretty picture, no matter how you cut it. Because what it says is that the sea, and imagine that. We've got a lot of water out there. The sea became blood. Is that beyond God's ability? No. Has he done that before? Well, not to that extent exactly. This is saying, in essence, all of it, not some of it. When we studied the trumpet judgments, if you remember, a third of the sea was destroyed. This is all of it. In that trumpet judgment, a third of the creatures of the sea died. This is all of them. Can you fathom the disaster that is? I was scanning through the news a little bit, and there was a report that there was an oil leak somewhere. I didn't read which country it was, but there was an oil leak out in the water. And you know how people respond to that now. Imagine all the seas become blood. (laughs) Everything living in it died. Everything. 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 Back in the mid-70s, I grew up uh, just a mile or so south of Lake Michigan, up in Indiana, right there at the bottom of the coast. And it was not uncommon for us to go to the shore. There are dunes, lots of sand. It was a beautiful little uh, state park that we'd go and visit. We'd go up there and we'd, of course, play and walk the trails and then go play in the water. In the 70s, they didn't have all the simple rules that they applied to factories as they do now. And uh, we had all along the shore of Lake Michigan were the steel mills. And they would dump their junk in the water. And I remember vividly going there, and the water was as yellow as that sweater right there. Yes. Do you want to swim in that? Neither do the fish. We found them all up and down the beach. Dead fish. Pleasant sight. For little kids to go and play. The beach is covered with dead fish. The water is absolutely yellow. What do you do with that? Oh, add the flies like the fish. It was really unpleasant. So we built, we built castles with little fish heads sticking out the walls. What else do you do with them? There's so many of them. It was gruesome. 
but when you talk about every single thing in the water dying, I've got a picture in my mind of what that must look like. And I thought, how horrific is that? Well, that's going to happen, folks. You may say, well, that has nothing to do with me. No, as a believer, it doesn't. But it does have something to do with what we think. Bowl number three, it says, And the third angel, verse four, poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. That's the freshwater supply now. How's that going to affect people? The freshwater supply has now been turned to blood. Remember, the trumpet judgments, only one-third of the fresh water was destroyed. In this judgment, it's all of it. All of it. All of it. And if you think maybe the pastor is teasing, the next three verses show you something. I heard the angel of the water say in verse 5, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Usually we speak of God being worthy of something. The King James says, for they are worthy. And we usually put worthy with God, but here they say, they are worthy of this. They deserve it. This is what they have to drink. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Even heaven will cry out and say, This is justified. This is justified. And God only does what's true and righteous. Don't you know that? He never deviates from what is true and what is righteous. And this is one display of it which scares us to think. Yes, that's what he does. And you say, okay, that's pretty bad when there's nothing to drink but blood. But add to verse that, verse 8 and 9. And what do you want more than anything when you're very hot? Something cold to drink. And since the blood is now the only option for drinking, verse number 8 and 9 seem even more intense. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had given them the power of these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. When I first moved here, almost ten years ago, you guys were reaching record numbers for heat at this time of year. And I'd go to the post office, 115 degrees or whatever it was out there. It felt like I was going to melt. And people would come out and say, oh, it's not always like this. And I said, well, okay, good. <laughs> I just didn't know what to expect here in the summer of Oklahoma. But I remember how hot that was. And somebody in the family, I don't know who it was, says, you know, they used to say you could fry an egg on a the sidewalk. They actually took one out and put it on the sidewalk just to see what it would do. And sure enough, it started to cook. I said, woo, that's pretty hot stuff. Imagine this. This is going to drive the meteorologist crazy. Men were scorched with fierce heat. Fierce heat. Fierce heat. So much so, they blasphemed the name of God. Now, the trumpet judgments took away a third of the sun. 
a third of the light, a third of the day almost, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, a third of nighttime as well. We read about that in the trumpet judgments. And here it's all consumed in one act of turning up the heat on the sun, which he does. And it scorches men. In the name of God, they blaspheme. Because here's what it is. They know who did this. They know who did this. And they still will not repent. Now, if this chapter were a song, this verse is a chorus. You're going to hear it repeated after many of these verses. They knew where it came from and still would not repent. They knew where it came from and still would not repent. Verse 10, bowl number 5 is poured out. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. I was reading another version this morning, Phillips, J.B. Phillips' translation that's It's a paraphrase. It's fun to read it. And he says, and he poured out his bowl on the animal. I said, ooh, what a funny word. It just caught me off guard, animal. But here it says beast. And we say, okay, that's the Antichrist. Yeah, we identified him before. It's poured out on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom, the Antichrist, became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. In verse 11, they blaspheme God of heaven because of their pains. And notice, and their sores. It still hasn't gone away. The sores, which you would think a sore like that, you could soothe it with water. But what is your option? Blood. You would say, then maybe I'll keep it cool. And what happened to the sun? Turns up. Now you add to it a darkness so dark, you feel it. You gnaw at your tongue. And you say, well, I don't know about that kind of darkness. Well, you know that's happened before. In the plagues that God laid upon Egypt, there was a darkness. It was number nine in the list of the ten. There was a darkness. It said in Exodus, I'll read it to you, chapter 10, verse 21, through a handful of verses, 27. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness that may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Oh, go serve your Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go. Then all the way down to verse 27 it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. That's part of the story there. A darkness that is felt. A darkness that is felt. I don't know what that is exactly. and I'm glad to say that. I don't want to know what that is. But what's amazing to me is how hard a sinful heart can get. You would think, you don't even have to to take it that extreme, God, and you've got my attention, (laughs) right? Wouldn't you like to be sensitive to his leading or his correcting, so much so that even if you 
think a little thought that you shouldn't, but you feel convicted about it right away, and you respond to that? Wouldn't that be ideal? Here's the picture. Every time they get a punishment, and it's more intense and more intense and more intense, they harden their heart more and more like Pharaoh did. I believe that's true. When a man or a woman gets involved in sin and makes a habit of it, I found more times than not that when you reprove them, they do not like it. They harden their hearts. They dig in deeper. They fight to defend the sin. Have you ever seen that before? Maybe. Jeremiah 17.9, some of you have it memorized. The heart is deceitful above all things. And what? Desperately wicked. And then he asks the question, who can know it? Who can know it? You know what? If it wasn't for the Lord's power to break through and change this stubborn heart, where would we be today? I'm so thankful that he's greater than my heart. I'm so thankful for that. But in this, Chapter, we've got the song being sung, and they come to the chorus again. They knew where it came from, and they still would not repent. Still would not repent. The sores are still there. They still will not repent. The sun is cranked up. They still will not repent. The darkness is so thick, they feel it, and they still will not repent. Bowl six is poured out. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on that great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet, we know him, three unclean spirits like frogs. That sounds yucky, doesn't it? For these are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. You know what? People read this and say, ooh, it appears as if Satan is orchestrating a terrible battle here. He dries up the river of the waters to mobilize these kings and he's bringing the armies together. They're going to gather together. We call it Armageddon. And they're going to wage a war and destroy the Jews. Look at the words again. Who dried up the river? God did. You could go all the way back to 480 B.C. and read the words of a man named Zechariah. In his prophecy, in chapter number 12, he said this. First two two or three verses. The burden of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of the man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. It is God who orchestrates this event. 
It is God who brings them to the battle. In Revelation 16, you're right there in verse number 15, he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. When has that phrase ever been good news to you? That's not a rapture verse. <laughs> Raptures are not written like this. Because that's not good news to say, hey, a thief is coming. How many of you throw a party for that? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. He's addressing those who are living at that time. He's not talking to you right now. He's not talking to you about this. But he's talking about in the context of what's happening here. They will be gathered together to a place in Hebrew which is called Harmageddon. The battle of Armageddon, folks, just so you understand, it's not a single battle. It's not just one war that takes place in one place. It's a campaign. It starts in a place called Megiddo. It's a plain that's north of the area of Judea and Jerusalem territory. It starts in that plain. That's where they gather. And then they attack the villages of Judah. And they surround Jerusalem. And they capture Jerusalem. And they continue on to a place called Basra, 200 miles to the south. That's going to be completed in Revelation chapter 19. We're almost there. (laughs) When Jesus returns. That's where he meets the battle. That's where we read of his campaign against them. But the sixth bowl, what was that? What did we just read? God is setting the table for a great war. That's part of his judgment on this world. So the seventh bowl is opened up. Now we're going to come back to that because there's more about that in the future. But chapter, uh, I mean, seventh bowl starts in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! This is the seventh bowl. And they were, there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. Notice the phrase, such as there has not been since man came upon this earth. So great was an earthquake. It was so mighty that the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God and to give her the cup of his wine. Or the wine of his fierce wrath. That's the next couple of chapters. And every island fled away. Picture that. The islands sink. The mountains were not found. Mountains are collapsing from this earthquake. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Ouch! They came down from heaven upon men. The chorus starts again. And men blaspheme God. They knew who it was from. And they still would not repent. What did we just see? The intense wrath of God. The stubborn wickedness of men. We've seen that, haven't we? What else did we just see? The faithfulness of God. Did he not promise this would happen? 
Yes. Matter of fact, it's written down here. Are you going to be surprised in the future to hear that this happened just like this? You shouldn't be, because God's faithful to his word. And he keeps every word. And what else did you see? The response of God's people. And what was that? You are right, O Lord. You are true. You all are mighty. You are God. We may not like sin, and I hope you don't. (laughs) We may not like sin. It is an offense to our holy God. We may not like the punishment for sin either. But note you, again, that cost our father, his son, did it not? Jesus Christ gave his life that we might be forgiven of sin. We may not like the response of this world because they blaspheme our God and refuse to give him glory in their repentance. But this one thing we do know, folks, our God is right. He is righteous, and He is holy, and He is true, and we can count on that. You may be thinking at this point, that's the worst it can ever get. I would say not so. Not so. There's something far worse than this scene. There will be a judgment day, and those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will find Him seated on a throne... And it's called the great white throne. And when they stand before him, as all unsaved people will, they will hear the final judgment of his wrath. I want to read to you just something. I know what time it is. But just a few thoughts here that came from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. He says, this judgment, talking about that day, will be divine. The judgment will be universal, personal divine because it is a judgment seat of god it will be a judgment according to truth god will make no mistakes he will not impute any wrong undeservedly he will not give credit for right because of the appearance of doing right he will search to the very core and essence of the matter trial by fire is but a scant figure of trial by the searching eye of the most high god he will test by the supreme standards of perfect justice That judgment will be most searching. The Lord pondereth the hearts. He will not judge after the sight of the eyes, but search out secrets. Then shall the foundations be tested. Then shall all that man has rested on and stayed himself on will be tried, and that judgment will be impartial. Rich friend, that diamond ring will answer no purpose in that day. My ladies, the Fine garments will make no impression in that court. My learned friend, that handle to your name will have no avail. And you, fine sir, with your knighthood and your earldom and your dukedom, will have none to make you better off. For coronets and even imperial crowns all go for nothing before the throne of God. He is no respecter of persons. This judgment will be final. The sentence of that supreme Court will settle all. Doth he say, Depart ye cursed? They can do no other. May none of you ever hear him say, Depart. For he will never reverse that sentence. 
you will, you will have to depart and keep on departing even further and further and further away from him who is hope and life and joy. There is no hope held out for those whom he says, as if he would say, come back again, ye cursed. But no, he will say, depart into everlasting fire and hell. God save us from such an ultimatum as that. Folks, I think we do see, living in a wicked world, terrible things. Those who leave this earth without Christ have no hope at all. They have no hope at all. We have hope. We have hope. We have truth because we know the Savior who is the way, the truth, the life. We know Him. This world doesn't. Simple question. Are we to keep our mouths quiet when the world needs to hear what we know about Jesus? If nothing else, folks, consider the wrath of God to be the rally cry for those who are willing to go into the world and preach the gospel. We know the blessings of forgiveness, don't we? We know the blessings of mercy, don't we? We know the blessings of grace, don't we? I think we live in a world that needs to hear it now. Who knows? You might speak to somebody yet today, or maybe this week, and they will come to know the Savior, and they won't live through chapter 16. I set that on your heart right now, to pray about it, please. Heavenly Father, We all pray about it. When you display your wrath, it shakes us to the core. We see these things and they alarm us by the nature of what they are. I am so thankful, Lord, that I do not look into the future and see your wrath upon me. Though I don't so rightly deserve such a thing, my Savior took my place. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. To save me from the wrath of God. And yet may my tongue not be quiet about it. For what you've done for me you could do for another person too. And maybe I'm the instrument that you will use to open my mouth. And share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe each of us might have a place this week. In your work. To be an instrument in your hand. To proclaim the good news to somebody who needs to hear it. Lord, we pray in these days, just like Habakkuk did in his. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Today, we need the mercy. May we be quick to share that with other people, we pray. For we know it, and we're thankful for it. We give you the praise for this today. And do your work in our hearts, and lead us to what we ought to do with it now. In Jesus' name, amen.